0: You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at IWU. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. If you had to think about and name the ways that your church is forming the faith of teenagers, could you do it? Is it structured, unstructured, intentional, happenstance? Does it happen in segregated groups? teens separate from adults? So does it happen in more integrated ways? Some of these questions listeners will know really well because they have uh, thought carefully and strategically or they've inherited a careful and strategic system of faith formation. Other listeners may not have any background in it at all. Maybe they've just inherited and they've just attended this church and inherited a ministry that faith formation was kind of happening. uh, We hope but not sure how it was happening or what the background was or what the foundation was or or what we were hoping students would emerge with uh, after we had formed faith in them. Or maybe for you, it's somewhere in between. You've got some things that are happening intentionally and other stuff that you hope is just kind of getting picked up by osmosis. Wherever you find yourself on that range today, I think you're going to enjoy the research and the uh, voice of our guest, uh, Dr. Catherine Douglas. Uh, Dr. Douglas is the Assistant Professor of Educational Ministry and Practical Theology at Seattle Pacific University. She uh, is the director and has directed since 2013 the Confirmation Project, which is a $1.1 million grant from Lilly uh, Foundation that researched confirmation and other similar such practices uh, to form disciples of Jesus Christ through the denominations of uh, PCUSA, United Methodist Church, Episcopal Church, um, and others throughout North America. Uh, this project ended up uh, engaging over uh, 3,000 local churches, number number of denominations, as as I just mentioned, and came up with some really rich findings that I think will benefit our listeners today. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Douglas.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Now, kind of my my first question is, where did you find time to do this long study, massive research project uh, with the midst of your your family, you're an outdoors person, your mom, uh, mother, three boys, full-time professor, right? Doing all these things. My first question is where did you find time to do all that? Uh, But I'll skip it. And I put it in just because people who are investing in the lives of teens are also in a similar spot, right? They've, they've got professional responsibilities. They've got family responsibilities. They've got lives of their own. Uh, so I, I include that so that listeners are, are getting a sense of, okay, here's somebody that is going to know some of the station of life that I'm in as well. So so the expertise that you're sharing is not something that's kind of disconnected from them, but it's something that you're living out as well.
1: Yeah, um, it's a, a definitely a topic that's close to my heart. My, I have three kids who are six just six and a half, just turned five and two. I worked as a youth minister, so this uh, is a an area of life that I've spent time working as a minister. And actually, the t- the reason I had time to do this was because that being a full-time researcher was my full-time job for the first. Um, two and a half years of this project so um, that I really carved out space I I professionally was designating all of my space toward this project and all of my attention Um, it grew actually out of the whole project the big question grew out of a question around what are people doing um, to make disciples of Jesus Christ how are they teaching them Um, helping youth learn about Jesus, uh, grow in their faith, and also become integrated into the church. Historically, the practice called confirmation is one that we've inherited. Um, Whatever tradition you come to, if you go back all the way to the Holy Roman Empire, one of the uh, sacraments was confirmation. And when the Reformation happened, Um, And Martin Luther, who's often, it's funny, Lutherans are the ones who are kind of most famous for doing confirmation these days. He said, we've got to get rid of these extra sacraments. They're not something we should be doing. And like every good, good Christian leader, he had some friends. One of them was named Theodore Biza. And he said, you know what? We should maybe keep confirmation just because it's a really great chance to teach people about their faith so they can articulate what it is that they believe. And so many Protestant congregations and traditions have kept that, although it's morphed over the years. And so the big question at the beginning of this project was, so there are all these people doing confirmation but they're doing really different things so Mm. let's look at what they're doing when they call it confirmation as we began to look at those churches and congregations and denominational practices we found that there were also people doing things that were basically the same thing but they were calling it something different so throughout the project we talk about confirmation and equivalent practices. To me, the most exciting thing about the project was seeing how when we learned about, what we learned about from each other that we were completely blind to because we uh, each one of us assumed that everybody else did it the way we did it. I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church and in our tradition, we tend, confirmation tends to be a series of Sundays. It sometimes is replacing Sunday school. It might have a retreat at the beginning or the end. Um, it involves learning about the denominational structure, about how we govern ourselves, what makes Presbyterians unique. It has some theology in it and often culminates in a written statement of faith. And then that's presented to a group of leaders in our local church called the Session. And they kind of rubber stamp everyone. Even if somebody's really heretical, we just really want to affirm that they're taking a step closer to God. So we're we're affirming heretics all over the place. Just <laughs> kidding. I don't know. There's exceptions out there too um, of, of different churches and how they do it. But then after that, we'll have a formal ceremony within um a worship service where the rite of passage um, happens, where youth confirm what they believe, and also the church confirms you're a follower of God, you've been baptized here. They're kind of confirming their baptismal promises. When we compared that denomination's practices to, for example, the Episcopalians, um, the first shock was kind of like, wow, you're doing this with adults? You have two different tracks," Which makes complete sense. So many people who become Christians, not just during their teenage years, but during their adulthood. One of the things that um, we also, that happened during the project, I live in Seattle and one of our local churches called me and he said, you know, my church has a roots in the Baptist tradition. We don't baptize babies. But I've been wondering what we should do um, to encourage the faith of teenagers when they're at this really crucial time in their life. Something where they're hungering for learning more about God, learning how to read the Bible. Um, And so, you know, tell me about what some different churches are doing and congregations are doing. Um, That's a really intentional time of intensification um, of faith um, and integrating theological practices and beliefs into a person's life. So that's kind of a, I don't know, a, a wily introduction as to where where our questions arose from for this project.
0: So you're seeing these different uh, practices and habits, and yet some overlap from these different denominations. Uh, you've done us a favor by putting these findings out in the book called "Cultivating Teen Faith." insights from the confirmation project. It's edited by you and Dr. Uh, Richard Osmer from Princeton Theological Seminary. It's published by Erdman's. Encourage uh, listeners, if they want to go deeper in this, that they can check out that resource, Cultivating Teen Faith, published by uh, Erdman's. And one of the things that you found out that I thought was maybe a little counterintuitive, uh, you know, just off the top of people's initial reaction. One of the things you found out is that students were really interested in theological topics and, and deep theological topics, topics like Trinitarian theology. What does it mean that God is, is a triune being, three persons in one? Uh, they're interested in talking about the Bible. They're interested in learning about prayer, specifically the Lord's Prayer. Um, what could churches do with this realization that teens are interested in talking about theology?
1: That's, um, to me, it was surprising as well. And it was actually one of those joyful surprises where I thought, Oh yes, good. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when youth come or teenagers are coming to confirmation or an equivalent type of ministry that's supposed to deepen their faith, they're coming for that reason. They want their faith to be deepened. They want to talk about these topics and they want to do it in a way that is, um, you know, a rigorous study. They're not interested in just, uh, you know, like, I don't know, some superficial, um, you know, lecture or somebody lecturing to them, but they want to be the ones who really wrestle with these things, these topics. And so what we looked at different congregations and we tried to understand, you know, how are they teaching? What does teaching look like? And um, one of our findings was that people are shifting away to- from um, somebody standing at the front and just giving a lecture. Um, most of us, uh, you know, would prefer more active learning environments. And so, one great example in Colorado, there's a congregation where they said, you know, we're going to take. Um, uh, the parents actually, when you sign up for confirmation it's like a really big deal and a really serious thing and they say, not only do you sign up but your parent one parent has to sign up with you or a or a guardian or a spiritual parent and so they come together and then they're divided into little groups, and you're not always with your parents often you're not and I think the the leader there probably creates the groups based on um, their own personal knowledge of these Uh, the family dynamics going on and then they'll learn about different topics together and then those smaller groups will teach the other groups Uh, and it gives um, young people a chance to see their parents in their own in a different light as a fellow learner Um, but it also gives them a chance to learn really rigorously together Um, because in America we have the separation of church and state students are studying really deeply big Uh, different issues, politics, you know, um, different histories of the world Uh, and this is a chance for the church to say we also rigorously study what we believe. Um, And so I think that's a really huge opportunity. Another thing um, that we saw related to kind of that example that I gave was that parents At this point in their life is a time at at this point in the life cycle is a time when young people are starting to differentiate from their parents. And there are ways that congregations can support that. And often we think of confirmation as this moment when parents can say, We've taught you what we're able to teach you. We want you to own this faith on your own. We want you to make it, um, you know, being a Christian part of your own identity. Um, But it's also Potentially a moment for parents to kind of get involved and have an excuse to come together and for the parents involved in that Congregation they said we actually love that. We have this time with our kid we're talking about deeply meaningful things and It's similar to like sexual education parents said, you know I I feel a little awkward about what I know and what I don't know about this and my kids have really big questions I don't know how to answer all their questions, but this gave me Um, the theological training and understanding and an opportunity to learn again that maybe I missed out on as a kid, or maybe it was just something I had forgotten. And so it served as a good refresher.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that maybe one of the unintended consequences of this realization that teens really are interested in theology and deep questions and learning more is that some people might be like, uh, it's going to expose the fact that I don't know as much as maybe they think I do, or I don't know as much as I want to know. Um, and so I'm thinking about this intimidation factor, kind of, kind of going up, right? If people know that teens are really interested and they're really uh, listening, that maybe they become more intimidated than they just would be, you know, which they already might be intimidated by teaching teenagers, right? Um, but I hear you say. That interest creates a real opportunity for them to, to go deeper relationally with their teachers, to, to give their teachers um, a, a reason to explore and expand and extend and deepen their own, uh, their own faith and, and knowledge of their faith as well. There's really some hidden opportunities in that.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, one of the challenges, I think, for all of us who teach young people is they um, will raise questions that we don't have answers to. So there is, um, I teach college freshmen, and they are really good at this. <laughs> and so are, and they, they're they good at it, because they started practicing when they were teenagers. Um, and they want to, they want to talk about really hard things in their real life. So a lot of them have experienced death, either the death of a grandparent, the death of a a pet, or even um, maybe the death of a friend in their school. And so asking like, where does death and where do bad things fit into my understanding of what it means to be a Christian or who I believe God to be and God's um, interaction with the world. If, if I believe in a triune God and God is, you know, Jesus who came to reconcile the world and Jesus overcame death, then why is there still death here? Um, that's an, a question that's really deeply theological. And that's a hard one for us to answer. And as a Christian, I will point to stories of resurrection and Paul in First Corinthians um, in chapter 15. And he talks about, like, why do we have hope in resurrection? Because we see it in Jesus Christ. Um, but we also have stories in Scripture and sections like uh, the Book of Job, where Job is delving with some of the most horrendous atrocities that a person could ever experience, and his his friends are saying to him, "Curse God and die! Like, why not just say goodbye to all of it? You know, don't don't keep believing in God in this world that's so cruel and painful." Um, and those same questions that we see in Scripture the experiences of Job. Those are the experiences our kids are having and they want to talk about them with people that they trust. And the beautiful thing about confirmation and ministry with young people is that um, we have the opportunity within this space to talk about those things that are really hard. And sometimes that even means exposing our own anxiety or our own lack of answers. So um, when I teach my students about, um, we talk about theodicy or the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, I tell them here's four different ways theologians have approached this and then I let them interact with those and then I'll say you know which is most compelling to you and they'll say to me well which is most compelling to you and I'll tell them what I really think Um, but I also say to them these are all legitimate ways of understanding this and there is a limit to human knowledge, and some of these are going to be unanswered until we meet God face to face after we die at the resurrection. Um, but I think what we can do is as we deal with or address these big theological topics, uh, we can do it with rigor and also with honesty and vulnerability. And actually, when students see that type of learning modeled for them, it sparks their curiosity to learn more and go even deeper in their faith. And so some of the people leading confirmation, and one thing we did a lot was talk with ministry leaders. Some people were saying, oh my gosh, I don't even know why we do confirmation. It's so stupid. It doesn't, it does the opposite of what it's supposed to, if it's supposed to welcome people into the church. At the end of this, it's actually like a graduation out of the church. And I think if our young people experience this type of learning as something really superficial that doesn't deal with real issues and real problems that they face, then of course they're going to say, well, you know, other people are dealing with these questions or big issues. I'll I'll talk about this somewhere else. But if we're able to say like, actually, congregations and churches, Christians who gather together, we're talking about some of the hardest stuff or the most challenging things in our world. I think they'll find that that community is one that will continue to encourage their faith and they'll want to be a part of um, going on into their life. And so some people who are leading different confirmation programs or equivalent types of ministries have said, you know, um, this is actually the way we do this ministry has redefined our whole community and our whole church because uh, we're a place that, um, talks about the most meaningful things, um, right at the heart of humanity. Um, and, and what it means to love God in a broken
0: world. Not that this is a surprise to you for sure. Uh, not a surprise to me, definitely not a surprise to our listeners who are involved in youth ministry, but I think it needs to be said, uh, that takes some guts to ask those questions that teens have, and it takes some guts to be to put yourself on the spot where you can be asked those questions, right, to entertain them and, and not just to be uh, dismissing them. My, my wife and I have this phrase, um, you know, if our, if our children are are misbehaving in a time Where they've been on the road, and they've been in the car for four hours, and we it's eight o'clock, and we haven't eaten supper, whatever else, and they they start to be a bit grumpy, right? We say they're doing exactly what we would expect them to do. They're doing exactly what we would expect them to do, and and one of the things I'm hearing from you is that these hard questions are exactly what we should expect thoughtful and engaged and interested teens to be asking we should expect them to ask hard questions it's not a sign of them of them wanting to go away from the faith or or to to expose their their teachers or their leaders it's exactly what we would expect of people who want to find out and i'm i'm taking it as a sign that man when people when people will ask you hard questions, it's not it it can feel threatening, but how important it is for us not to take it as threatening, but to take it as a sign of trust. This person is entrusting something that is difficult and that they wrestle with and they want to know how do I wrestle with it, they're entrusting that question to me.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um it's a it's that is the gift of getting to do ministry is that they that there are these magical conversations where the spirit is there and you just know God's working and churning things up for somebody. Um, A lot of times it's connected with their own experiences, their own, um, you know, feelings of pain or rejection. A lot of times it means going to some dark places um, with young people. And one thing I um, often think about when I and and talk about in my classes with college students is I'll tell them, you know, you've had a lot, you've dealt with a lot, like I don't know you yet, but I know that some of you have walked some really challenging roads and that, um, that that didn't start when you got here, that you've had life experiences that are really hard. And I think that we have an opportunity with our teenagers to acknowledge them as full blown humans who have had a wide spectrum of experiences and they're seeing some, Um, facing some hard things and there's some challenges in their life that they've encountered that um, that they're willing to you know bring into our world and we can um, by, like you said by kind of accompanying them um, and and willing being willing to to go there and acknowledge like wow you're trusting me with this this is a really precious and valuable moment and time we can really encourage their faith and share them, share God's love with them that like, you know, you're not alone. Even if we don't get to an answer at the end of this, you're not alone the community that loves you. Um, There were some other things we found that are along the same theme of like, that's what we would have expected. So one of the big studies that was done, has been an ongoing study, is the National Study of Youth and Religion. And one of the things they found was that the faith of youth tend to reflect the faith of their parents. And our study found that as well. If parents are active and engaged, um, and they're modeling their faith, that that has a huge impact on the faith of young people. Um, it's kind of not a surprise anymore. So if the biggest thing you could do actually for the faith of your kids when i think about my young children is i want to i want to live out a faith that is a witness to them in my own home because i spend more hours a week with them than any youth minister ever will and and i'm their biggest example of what it looks like to live a christian life and my husband as well and um one thing we also found is that, and I don't, I don't entirely know what to do with this finding, so maybe those of you out there in the ministry world can prompt this conversation. You can do a little bit of local research. But it tends to be mothers and not fathers who are taking kind of ownership of the faith formation of their kids. In um, a letter to Timothy, Paul actually writes about how Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, are people who handed on faith to Paul. And uh, or to Timothy and and Paul is giving thanks for them. So it seems that mothers and grandmothers have played this really important role uh, biblically. Um, and I think it's really valuable for us to also think about like what's the unique role of a mother or a father or a grandmother or a spiritual mother or aunt, you know, who are involved in these lives and invite the conversation within your community to say, um, what does it mean to faithfully parent kids at this age? We saw some really good examples of um, congregations equipping families um, for faith formation in their home. So um, both really big ones and really small ones. I'll give you just two that are kind of extremes. So there's a really big church in Kansas where uh, it's a mega church, 20,000 people. Every year their, um, their confirmation program has 200 youth in it, which is incredible. So they, what they do is they make they publish their own workbook and then they publish a second copy of the workbook with all the answers in it and they give it to the parents and they say, we want you to know what your kids are learning about, we also want this to be a chance for you to learn if that's you know something that's happening in your home um, and we'd love for you to raise questions um, with us but also for this to be a way for you to talk with your kids. It's funny they're doing that because at the same time my son is in preschool and they'll send me a list of questions they'll say you know when your son gets home you could ask him what's in the sensory bin that's new today you know and it's the answer is penguins frozen in ice cubes or whatever and that gives me a way to talk to my kid about what happened um and i'll say of course every parent has had this experience where you say oh what's in the sensory bin and paul's like what are you talking about and i'll say you know the penguins and the ice cubes and he's like oh yeah Oh Yeah, and then he'll and then he'll tell me about it, but they're trying to cultivate conversations in people's homes about faith The other example is one that I think is so fun and wouldn't we all love to do this? So There's a young woman who was part of a congregation. She wanted to be confirmed So she talked to people in the church The church only has about 50 people in it and they have about one kid go through confirmation every five or six years so every time it's like they, they say, like, well, what would it mean in our church for someone to be confirmed? So this girl happened, her father was uh, going to be working overseas for a year and a half. So they decided they would use that time as a family to do spiritual pilgrimages to different places. And then through FaceTime, this young woman would connect with somebody who would be her, her mentor and kind of guide throughout the process. And there were little glitches here and there and funny things that happened. But the the mom and the congregation and this young woman all really took ownership of the process and said, what would it mean to for this young woman to confirm her faith, to grow in her faith while we're traveling, while we're not part of our local church and while we're kind of out on the road? And so she kept a spiritual diary. and. Um, would check in with this mentor. And every time they were in town, they would come home to church and their home church in the United States. And they would share kind of what was happening. And she would share about how she was growing. I just thought that was a really fun example of um, how parents can get involved in faith. And it's another, like I said, one of those things that you would, you kind of expect.
0: Let me kind of switch the, and and make a play on the word uh, trust. We talked about how Teens are are trusting those with their questions when they're asking them, and you mention uh, about the role of of parents, and the the play that I want to make on it is this: What about when parents trust their teens to other people? And I specifically have in mind uh, retreat and camping ministries. All right, I was a teen, grew up. I was I was sent to camp as a kid. I was sent to to Bible camp as a as a teen. And uh, you know, had good experiences. enjoyed Enjoyed doing that. And now, as a parent, and I, and I look back, I'm like, man my My parents were really trusting to send me to places where they weren't going to be for for you know for four or five days, and and you know, just kind of out of their supervision and that. Right, the parents trusting their teens uh, to send them on these retreats to send them to camp. What What did you find uh, as it pertained to the faith formation of teens with these retreat and camping experiences?
1: well we had um we we did these different measures of of kind of religiosity or how 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 um how much do kids experience a sense of christian faith uh, uh belief behaving and belonging were the categories we used and the the experience that had the most impact on those was actually whether or not they had attended a camp now a camp is longer than a retreat a retreats have a positive effect on the faith of young people and if you think about it um, if you think about like there's 52 weeks in a year. So let's say you have a Sunday school class that meets for an hour every week and the kid is there every single week. You get 52 hours with a kid. But if you take them on a retreat for a weekend and you have them for two full days, you have them for 48 hours. Um, that's a lot of time. Um, and you can you can do. Um, there's one woman I know who's in Bronxville, New York, just north of New York City and she does her whole confirmation program around three retreats. And she said, you know, in those three retreats, I spend more time with the kids, these young people, I get to know them better and we can go much deeper than if we were to have a Sunday school class. And so they've just shifted their model just because of the time and the, the quality of relationships and how deep they can go in these three retreats. It also means they're not competing with soccer schedules. Um, and, and, uh, Anyway, so that's one thing just logistically that we saw that was, I thought, oh yeah, like this makes so much sense. Um, We should all do, (laughs) we should all shift to retreats, a retreat model. But the other thing we found um, that we learned from our Lutheran, mostly the Lutheran, our Lutheran brothers and sisters is that they, um, for them confirmation lasts the longest. They can't get enough of a good thing. So. A lot of young people will sign up for confirmation and be a part of it that's um, a full year or often two. Two is kind of the typical amount of time and sometimes even longer. And that means part of their time together happens during the summer. A lot of young people will go to um, a summer camp for a week that will be focused on um, confirmation type learning or it will be part of their confirmation program that they attend a camp for a week and that seemed to have um, the one of the biggest impacts on their faith and i think anyone who's been to camp would actually agree Um, jacob Sorensen was our researcher who did this and he he's doing a lot of research and continuing to do research on why is it that camp has such a profound effect in the presbyterian denomination they did a study of pastors and almost all pastors had had some type of really profound experience at camp Um, and that made them aware of their call to ministry. I'm not exceptional on this. I grew up going to Montreat, North Carolina, uh, to the College of Montreat where they have this huge Presbyterian summer camp. Um, Basically, it gives young people an opportunity to try to live into this alternative way of being as a Christian um, in in a community of people who are trying to do the same thing. Also one thing Jacob Sorensen pointed out was, you know, if something goes wrong or somebody, you know, brokenness happens and forgiveness is needed, you can't go home from camp. You can't be like, well, I'm gonna just avoid them in the cafeteria tomorrow. Um, You're all stuck there at camp together. And so they they get to actually experience forgiveness and reconciliation. They get to see um, people who are with genuine earnestness trying to live out their faith and sometimes succeeding wildly and sometimes, um, you know, running into their own limitations. And so um, um, there was a, a research project I was a part of before this one. And we found that um, high school youth theology programs, this other thing, um, it, it created almost like a language immersion experience, but this Christian immersion experience. I think that's why um, Um, For example, Young Life has such a powerful uh, impact on young people, not just because of their Monday night clubs, but because they have this camping part of it. Um, Part of uh, going to Young Life is often going to camp. And they realized, like our research found as well, that camp experiences just have this really powerful effect on the faith life um, of young people.
0: Joining us today has been Dr. Catherine Douglas. Dr. Douglas is uh, one of the co-editors of Cultivating Teen Faith, put out by Erdman's, uh, sharing some insights from the Confirmation Project, which was a research project that she's been running since 2013 uh, f- through uh, Lily Foundation on uh, the faith formation of teens. I uh, want to finish up with with one more question for you, Dr. Douglas, Um, and and maybe it's like an encouragement kind of question. So we've got people listening in. Some are are excited about the ministry that's happening in their church. They they are right, cutting edge. They're tip of the spear to how they want to see the faith of their teens formed. Uh, and we've got other people who are just kind of asking that question, right? Why like why why are we doing this? Maybe they're skeptical. Maybe they're just defeated, discouraged. Uh, I want to give you a chance to speak some hope to both, right? Both people who are encouraged can can use some hope, people who are discouraged can use some hope. So speak hope to both. Um what's what's trending that uh those in the church can capitalize on or build on to see the faith formation of their teens grow and and improve? What's what's trending that we can really take hold of and and build on
1: that's a really great challenge Aaron. Um, so I would say actually to not be afraid of exactly the question you pose to me to ask yourself genuinely with the group of people who are kind of the stakeholders around ministry with young people, ministry of teenagers or confirmation and say, why are we doing this? And is what we're doing producing the effect that we think it's going to have? And if it is not, or if you can't answer that question, I encourage you to be brazen and call it off for a year. So one church in Salt Lake City did that. Um, I'm friends with this woman, Jamie White, and she said, you know what? At the end of confirmation, our kids were all graduating out of church. They didn't do it anymore. And we just took a year off. And we we didn't take a year off to be like, we need a break. But we took a year off to try to answer the question, why are we doing this? And she said, I bought every curriculum that was sold on confirmation I read all this stuff on teen faith formation I tried to understand the history of confirmation and why we're doing it and I got together of parents and youth um, and also leaders in our church to say like what should this ministry be who should we be reaching and they realized in their setting in Salt Lake City a lot of the people who had questions about faith or were growing in their faith wanted to make a commitment weren't just teenagers but it was people who were coming out of the Mormon tradition, it was people who had no faith background, and, and it was teenagers. And so they said, we've got to do something a little bit different here. We're in, And also, the word confirmation doesn't mean anything here. Nobody knows what we're talking about. So they decided to do something totally different. There are other congregations where things are going just gangbusters, amazing, strong, wonderful. Um, there's an example in Minnesota where they have something, um, where they said, okay, we're going to set it up like a college classes and we're going to have Bible one Oh one, Bible one Oh two and Bible one Oh three. And every person who goes through confirmation has to make it up to the third level or whatever in these different areas. And it was so wildly popular that other people in the church said, well, can I send in on Bible 101, I mean, I know it's for the confirmation kids, but can I do it too? And instead of sort of protecting it too much, they said, oh yeah, you guys can join in on us. And so the whole, it, it just, they kind of opened up the possibility of like, maybe this is even bigger than what we originally focused on. Um, also one thing that I think was really important for uh, for us in our project, and one thing I wanted to give to each person who, um, who interacted with our project was, People feel isolated and so I would encourage you if you aren't sure what you're sh- you should be doing or, or what's going on try to get coffee invite you know four or five other people in your area who are also have maybe hold a similar position to your own and talk to each other and say like what are you doing and what's working because chances are you're all dealing with the same soccer schedule or the same school breaks or the same social pressure for example. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, large Roman Catholic presence. So that meant some things. There was a certain amount of social pressure for the Protestants to get together and um, to have confirmation the same year, like seventh grade as the Roman Catholic kids were doing it. So um, I would encourage you to um, talk to people in your area and find out what everybody else is doing and, and then you know let that go where it d- goes and also be courageous. Uh, and if you want, take a year off and see see how God might use that listening space to inspire um, something new to happen in your um, congregation.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Douglas, for joining us today.
1: Thank, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful.
0: And thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning in. And uh, the seminary has got a small gift for uh, you listeners that have tuned in. Uh, if you go to seedbed.com forward slash Perry seedbed.com forward slash Perry and use the code W S as in Wesley Seminary W S gift. you'll receive a free copy of the book, uh, putting the plot back in preaching, which, uh, I published a couple years ago, just a small thank you from the seminary for your tuning in. Thank you listeners, uh, for the way you support it, uh, seedbed.com forward slash Perry with the promo code W S gift. Also encourage you to take a look at Cultivating Teen Faith, uh, put out by Erdman's and uh, the the fruit of so much of uh, Dr. Douglas's research that she has so graciously shared with us today. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope this is helpful and encouraging to you. Thanks again. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the
1: name Wesley Seminary.